You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This is the word of the Lord. All right, welcome. Glad you were here this morning. Um, if you've ever been to Buckingham Palace or simply seen pictures of it, there is a long-standing tradition regarding the flag that flies above it. When the Queen of England, or at least the tradition holds, that when the Queen of England is present at Buckingham Palace, there's a particular flag that is flown above Buckingham, and it's called the Royal Standard. Now, having been there, and having sort of experienced and seen the royal standard waving, and I, know, I can't, can't tell you exactly why, but there is this, this sense of awe and amazement and energy that is present because the Queen of England is there. The Queen of England is just like right there, so close, maybe just 100 yards or so. But then you begin to realize as you, as you look around that despite the proximity, as I mentioned, maybe 100 yards or so, you're about a million miles away from the crown. There's, you know, the, the iconic stoic soldiers out front. There's the long, tall, iron gates. There's the pacing troops. There are security guards and Scotland Yard and MI6 and James Bond and everyone and their mother there <laughs> to defend the queen from you. They are standing between you and her majesty. This is what it communicates to, you know, like just unassuming tourists that just want to snap a picture in front of Buckingham. It's that your presence poses a potential threat to her safety. That's what those guards are there for. That's what those iron fences are there for. That's what everyone and their mother protecting the queen is communicating, that your presence is a potential threat to the crown. Now, occasionally, kings and queens will receive people. They will consent to give audience, maybe a two-minute audience if they're lucky, where people will come in, quickly speak, and then they're swept away. 
Typically, authority is something that people approach with trepidation. Typically, authority is, is something that is marked as sort of off-limits. This is pretty representative of a larger conversation about authority today. In fact, we probably have some trepidation this morning when we hear these words, authority attached to Jesus. By and large, in our world, authority is synonymous with inaccessibility. To be in authority means to be inaccessible by the people, to rule and to reign in the distance, aloof, controlling the matters of everyday people like you and me from some ivory tower off in the distance. Yet as we continue in our series here in the Gospel of Mark, we are confronted with an entirely different kind of authority. And that's what we need to settle right now as we approach this topic. This is an entirely different kind of authority, one that is going to challenge your experience, one that is going to disrupt your assumptions, and I hope and pray is going to leave you asking, just like the crowd in this scene, what is this? What is this? I've titled this morning's message, Astonishing Authority, Astonishing Authority. There's an ancient thinker and writer that said this, majesty and love do not well agree, nor do they live together. Majesty and love, they, they, they don't mix. It's like oil and water. They don't go together. But what we see here in Mark is that in Jesus, they actually do. Majesty and love, in fact, meet. For Jesus Christ is the actual embodiment of the love and majesty of God himself. Mark tells us of a king and a kingdom that draws near to us. Not distant, not aloof, not guarded or protecting, but a kingdom that draws near, that is at hand. Our presence is not a threat to this king. Our presence is a place that God desires to reveal his grace. What we see here in Mark is an authority that speaks to us, an authority that delivers us from oppression, an authority that actually heals us. Majesty and love so near that even, it even visits us in our most vulnerable moment, takes us by the hand, lifts us to life. See, Jesus' authority is going to be a central theme in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to read about authority all throughout Mark. Later, we're going to read that Jesus has the authority over the Sabbath. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Jesus has authority over unclean spirits and legions of demons and over the temple, over the law, over nature like wind and rain and waves and that sort of thing and on and on. Jesus has the authority. But this is Mark's first mention of authority. When an author like this mentions a topic like this first, it's very, very important. And it's important for us to, to understand that this concept of authority is being framed in this series of events that has occurred over the course of 24 hours. Everything we read of this morning is all occurring over the course of less probably than 24 hours. And what Mark intends to show us is that this is an authority that is deeply concerned about the whole of our humanity, concerned about our mind, concerned about our spirit, concerned about our body. See, this portion of Mark highlights the authority of Jesus in these three arenas, through the teaching of Scripture, 
through the delivering of a man with an unclean spirit, and through the healing of the sick. If you're taking notes this morning, the first point to note is this, that Jesus has the authority to teach. Jesus' authority to teach. Look with me again, verses 21 and 22. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So picture the scene. Jesus is teaching, and people are shocked, perhaps even threatened by the teaching of Jesus. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But Mark doesn't specify what exactly Jesus is saying. Mark's gospel is not specifying what is being said. What Mark wants us to know is the way that Jesus is teaching, that Jesus is teaching with authority as one who has authority in contrast to the scribes of Jesus' day. See, it is in the tradition of the scribes, it was common to teach in a way where the scribes would reference tradition and scribes would reference other rabbis and other scribes and and other people. So it would become, you know, so-and-so, quote, so-and-so, quote, so-and-so, and and quote, so-and-so in a way that apparently was devoid of any kind of real authority. And yet on this Sabbath day in a synagogue in Capernaum, they discover something different. They hear something different. They're sensing something different, a different kind of teaching. Someone who's communicating to them the scriptures, not as the scribes teach, but as, as it were, the, the author of life. In fact, the book, of, the book of Acts tells us that Jesus, in fact, Jesus is referred to in the book of Acts like this, Acts chapter 3, verse 15, the author of life whom God raised from the dead. The author of life whom God raised from the dead. So we have to imagine that this idea has something to do, some sort of influence on the event that we're reading about here this morning in Mark. Now imagine a scenario with me. Imagine I go into a bookstore, while that is still a thing, and I pick up a book off the shelf, I sit down, I read it, I put it back, I go home, and I type up a summary and an overview of what I read in that book. Now, that may be helpful to some, especially if that's, you know, a textbook or someone is cramming for a test the next day, they will find that summary helpful. But it's mildly helpful at best. But then imagine a different scene where the author has agreed to come and actually do a reading at that same bookstore, where the author of that book comes, takes the book off the shelf, sits down, reads the book or a portion of the book, closes it, and begins to dialogue with the crowd. There's something very, very different about my summary of that book and hearing the very words of the author, all the right tones in all the right places with all the right nuance as the author of that book. So what's the big difference between Jesus' teaching and the scribes' teaching? Timothy Keller put it this way. Mark means that Jesus talked about life with original rather than derived authority. He didn't just clarify something that they already knew or simply interpret the scriptures in the way that the teachers of the law did. His listeners, listen to this, his listeners sensed somehow that he was explaining the story of their lives as the author, and it left them dumbfounded. They sensed something different. He's he's not just speaking, he's speaking to my heart. See, when Jesus spoke, not simply as a teacher, but as the authority 
He is speaking to the inner parts of their hearts. He's leaving them astonished. Now, I love that this word is used, astonished, because it can mean, like, amazed, like, wow. But this word also can be translated struck with panic, like, uh-oh. The teachings of Jesus seem to have the ability to do both. There are sometimes there are moments where you're just like, wow. And then there are moments where it's like, zing. That stings. It seems to capture the mixed reaction that people have to Jesus' authority, even to this day. Where there are moments where we are wowed, and then there are moments where we're like, ooh, uh-oh. See, the way that Jesus speaks and commands can at times pose a threat. And maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you're even going to experience that today. But what we need to understand is if the teachings of Jesus pose a threat to us, we need to understand that the teachings of Jesus do not pose a threat to our goodness. And the teachings of, uh, of Jesus do not pose a threat to our joy. And the teachings of Jesus do not pose a threat to our holiness or our future or our hope or our eternity. The teachings of Jesus pose a threat to our autonomy. They pose a threat to our self-sovereignty. They pose a threat to our delusion of control in our lives. History tells us that Thomas Jefferson was extremely inspired by the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, but he was not so inspired by some of his teachings. In 1819... Jefferson published a version of the Bible, which actually, by the way, you can still find online today, a published version of the Bible, where he went through the life and teachings of Jesus Christ throughout the four Gospels and left portions that he liked and then took a little sharp knife, like you know, the 1800s version of an X-Acto knife, and began to meticulously cut out the portions that he did not like and replace them with what he thought it should say and published it as the Jefferson Bible. Now, I hope that none of you will be brazen enough to do that today. But here's the truth, if we're going to be honest for just a moment. We do this all the time. It may not be with exacto knife in hand, but practically speaking, we say, I'm going to take this over here, and I'm going to discard this over there. I like this part. This is inspiring. Not so much. We take the good, we take what we perceive as bad, and we produce, we publish our own version of the Jefferson Bible. See, Jesus is recorded in the book of Luke asking a very important question. Now hear these words. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Why do you call me king and not treat me like it? Why do you confess that I have authority over your life, but practically speaking, I don't? Now, this should be felt as a rebuke. In fact, I think all of us need that rebuke today. But also, we shouldn't miss the question. There's a real question in that statement. The question is, why? Why do we do this? Why, why do we call Jesus Lord? Why do we confess him with our lips, but then our hearts are far from him? And I have to imagine that for many of us, especially in the 21st century, you do this because we're concerned about our freedom. We are concerned that the further we go down that road of following Jesus and all that he says, at a certain point, we are going to have to compromise our freedom. We're going to have to give up the things that we consider make us us. 
One of the most influential figures of the 21st century once said this, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. Are you guys familiar with this one? No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Okay, all the parents are laughing right now. And anyone raised, like, born after 2000 is, is digging this right now. This is from Frozen, by the way. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. That's the free life. Now, probably our children aren't maybe intellectually mature enough to understand the sort of moral lesson that is being woven into the story Frozen. All they are remembering are those lines. And that is probably the most often sung portion of the movie. No rules, no right, no wrong for me. Now I'm free. But that is our concept. That we break away from the rules, we break away from what is wrong, we break away from what is right, we determine what is right and wrong in our life, and then there is where we find freedom. But the question is, was she really free in her kingdom of isolation? Was she really free at the expense of everyone else in the kingdom? See, it's by the very nature of total surrender, total surrender, to the author of life, that we actually discover the freedom that our souls long for. The kind of freedom that not only benefits us, but the people around us. See, the authority of, of Jesus to speak, not like a scribe, but as the author of life himself, means that the teaching of Jesus is to be the governing authority over our lives. If he has the authority to teach, it means he has the authority to speak into our lives. And he has the authority to speak into our lives as king and to determine for us what is best for us, amen? Not in part, but in full. Because you do not need a partial kingdom with a partial king with partial authority. You need the king with the authority to teach. You guys with me this morning? That I've, got, I've broken that habit of asking, but I need to actually ask this morning. <laughs> The second thing, if you're taking notes, is this. Jesus' authority to deliver, verses 23 through 24. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, in the secular soil of our world, where life has really been reduced down to biology and social impact. A conversation about demon possession can really feel like it's coming out of left field. Like, you read, you're reading this and you're like, man, what a day to invite my neighbor. We're talking about demons today. Great. It can feel out of left field. For some of you, it feels superstitious. For some of you, it feels archaic. We've moved beyond. For some of you, it feels fanatical. Oh, okay, okay, you're that flavor of Christian. Now, as a culture, we still have the language of evil, barely, but it's there. Because occasionally, when we see the worst of the worst that humanity has to dish out, we'll say things like, gosh, that was evil. We still have the remnants of our religious past. 
We've forgotten it, but it still embeds itself in our language because we still say things like, man, what's come over him? Or what's gotten into her? By and large, we are unattuned to the presence of evil. We are unattuned to the presence of the demonic. We are unattuned to the works of Satan. And yet we're left in this world to face their presence on a daily basis. Whether we've abandoned the language of transcendence or not, here we are in a world in conflict. Even within the church, it's sort of a strange matter to discuss. We have faced situations in our 11 years as a church where there were clearly situations and people were like, that was demonic. I don't have any other way of explaining it. It's demonic. And so we'll bring it to the, the place that it should be brought to, the prayer meeting, because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And so we bring it to the prayer meeting, and you should see the faces of even seasoned saints like, wait, we're talking about demons right now? Like, I don't know if I signed up for this sort of Christianity. Yes, you did. Yes, you actually did. Even within the church, even within the Christian world, within the realm of Christianity, it's something that we sort of, ooh. See, if if this scene occurred, now picture this scene. This isn't like on the corner of, of, of Channel and San Joaquin right now. This is in the worship setting. Right? This is in our midst. If this occurred in our gathering, we would look to place it in categories like emotional distress. We would say, oh, maybe that individual has Tourette's syndrome. Or maybe they're having a psychotic episode. Or maybe they're on just a really bad drug trip right now. But it's important to remember that Mark is not giving us medical descriptions. That's not Mark's intention. In fact, Mark is going to draw a distinction between those with various diseases and those who are oppressed by the demonic forces. He actually puts them in separate categories. Now, although there may be overlap, and sometimes there are overlap, but the point is this, demonic things, like what we're reading of here in Mark, just don't fit our modern categories. Stop trying. Stop trying. But Mark does give us an important description of this person. He's going to tell us something specific about this individual that we need to know. He says, he describes this individual as someone who has an unclean spirit. Specifically for the Jewish reader, this would have sparked something. Unclean. What does this mean? Unclean. Well, unclean is the language of the Old Testament for that which is banished from the presence of God. That which makes something temporarily or long-term banished from God's presence and banished from God's people. Unclean things cannot be in the presence of a holy God. So what we're doing, what Mark is doing rather, is leading us, the reader, to understand that demonic forces and unclean spirits are seeking to alienate people from God and his people. That the work of Satan and the work of the demonic, all the way back from, to the very beginning in the garden, is to destroy and disrupt God's shalom and to alienate us. To break relationship between us and God, to break relationship between us and his people, and to drive us out into isolation, to drive us out into, into alienation. The work of the demonic, the unclean spirit. Here in Mark, while this may be an extremely remarkable case, one author says this. He says, demon possession is on the extreme end of a condition that we are all in. Now ponder that thought for a second. That demon possession is an extreme, on the extreme end of a condition that we are all in. 
Let me read two passages from Scripture. First John, the whole world, what part of the world? Okay, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. You were marching with that army. You were under the sway of the evil one. Whether you knew it or not, you were serving demons and Satan himself. Sometimes we think of sin simply as naughty things that we shouldn't do. Right? Just these, you know, these little pitfalls that we avoid in life. We fall into it, we say sorry, but they're, they're, they're the things that we, the naughty things that we shouldn't do. But it's very clear from Scripture that it is a much more fierce and enslaving force than bad things. Much more enslaving and fierce force than naughty things. Actually, we're probably overcome by sin often because we've underestimated its power. Let, let me read you a quote from Fleming Rutledge. She said this, Sin is not so much a collection of individual misdeeds as it is an active, malevolent agency bent upon despoiling, imprisonment, and death. The utter undoing of God's purposes Misdeeds or sins or naughty things are signs of that agency at work. They are not the things itself. It is the thing itself that is our cosmic enemy. Not sins, but sin. The malevolent force bent upon destroying your life and God's purposes. We see it in the way that it enslaves us towards greed. We see it in the way that enslaves us in addiction. We see, in, we see it in the way that it sinks its teeth into us. In some way, the scriptures describe we are slaves to sin. We are slaves to evil. We are under the sway of the devil. Listen, until King Jesus liberates us. Until Christ sets us free. But the question I hope you're asking this morning then is how do I know I'm in bondage? How do I know I'm under sin and evil's grip? Or for the believer, how do we know when we are once again submitting to the grip of evil? That we've been set free, the chains are broken, and now we're placing the chains back on ourselves. Well, probably one of the most obvious ways is found in this passage. And here it is, when the presence and the teachings of Jesus is felt as a threat. When our posture is one of defense and resistance toward Jesus. Listen again to how this man speaks. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Have you come to destroy my life? Have you come to make me miserable? Have you come to take away my joy? Have you come to ruin my family? Have you come to mess up my finances? Have you come to, to pop and burst my bubble of dreams and hope? Have you come to destroy us? See, to see the work in the words of Jesus as a threat to our life, rather than liberation, the words of Jesus are words of liberation. But to see those words and to hear those words as anything less than words of liberation is in some way to be viewing Jesus demonically. 
through the lens of Satan. Yes, his presence brings judgment of evil in this world, but the scriptures tell us that he brings joy and freedom to the repentant. In fact, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul writing in Galatians 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Why did he set us free? Uh, for freedom. <laughs> Why is Jesus speaking these words into your life? For freedom. He has one goal for your life. Freedom. Not bondage. Not slavery. Not death. Not oppression. Freedom. And nothing less. Sorry, I got excited. I'm not mad at you. I'm excited about the gospel. <laughs> I promise. Thank you. <laughs> but listen, here's, here's, we live in the 21st century. We live in a day and an age where it is very common to hear that the teachings of Jesus are repressive. We're going to walk out the door. We're going to be like, yes, freedom. We're going to walk out that door. We're going to hear it. Those teachings are repressive. That's archaic. Are you seriously still part of that? Catch up. We're in the 21st century. What are you doing? The teachings of Jesus are seen as a, a threat for specifically to personal freedom, to what I want to do with my life. So if the teachings of Jesus are felt as repressive or a danger to your happiness, that if you truly follow Jesus in all that he says, that it's going to somehow destroy your life, then this, are, this is a very good sign that you are in bondage and that God intends to deliver you through the powerful work of his Holy Spirit. Can I say that again? God desires to set you free. You know what I like about this account? Is that no matter, no matter the resistance, I mean, this is some serious resistance here. There is no amount of resistance that is a match to Jesus' delivering authority. Read with me in verses 25 and 26. But Jesus rebuked him. Sometimes he does that. Be silent. Translation, shut up. Speaking to the unclean spirit, by the way, but still, shut up. Come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Now, people love to talk about the free will of man. But you know who loves and is loving the irresistible power and sovereignty of God right now? The guy that just got delivered. This guy. The guy that had, did not have what it takes to turn his life around. The guy that did not have what it takes to turn his life over to Jesus. The one who was so deeply in the grips of bondage that it took nothing less than the commanding voice of Jesus Christ to set him free. That guy. That guy is rejoicing in the sovereignty and irresistible power of Jesus Christ. Come out of him. Follow me. You are mine. For freedom I have set you free. We would do well to pray this prayer. God, overpower my resistance. Through Christ, deliver me from evil despite my fight. May your spirit lead me in the way of true freedom. The child of God comes to God and says, there are going to be times where you know best, and I'm going to kick, and I'm going to scream, and I'm going to resist you. Please, oh God, in your grace, overpower my resistance. 
be greater than my resistance. And answer that, I pray that God loves to answer. Amen? I gotta move on. Okay. Finally, Jesus' authority to heal. Verses 29 through 31. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. And he came, took her by the hand, lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. Now, a significant part of Jesus' earthly ministry is healing. Healing those with various diseases, we're told. And actually, Mark's going to expand this throughout the gospel. Many, many examples. So I'm not going to say everything there is to say about uh, healing and what the Bible has to say about healing, not today, even not throughout this whole series in the book of Mark. But what we need to remember is this, a very important introduction here. It's important to remember that humans are very complex individuals. You are a complex being. And so that means that healing involves mind. Healing involves emotions. Healing involves body. Healing involves spirit. Healing involves relationships. When we talk about healing, we're not just talking about one aspect of life. When Jesus desires to heal, it's not just one aspect of your life. God intends to heal it all. So we seek the whole, for our whole being to be restored within the kingdom of God, believing that as we come under the authority of Jesus, it brings healing into our lives. It brings healing into our lives partially now. Mark's showing us that the inauguration of the kingdom of God through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the kingdom breaking into our broken world, brings healing in part. But the Christian also clings to the promise of Christ's return, that the consummation of all things, Jesus will right every wrong. He will wipe away every tear. Death will be no more. There won't be pain. There won't be suffering. There won't be ailment. Our relationships will be whole. Our bodies will be whole in our resurrected bodies, in part today, in whole tomorrow, in limbo today. The first miraculous healing is the case of Peter, Simon Peter's mother-in-law, who was sick in bed with a fever. Side note, I love this. Apparently, there's nothing too small to ask God to heal. Mark tells us that Jesus simply comes to her. He takes her by the hand, and he lifts her up. He takes her by the hand and lifts her up. And as he did, the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Now, this picture is, is pretty extraordinary here because Mark is personifying the fever. The fever leaves her. It doesn't say, like, she no longer had a fever. The fever leaves. So here's the picture. Jesus comes, the fever leaves. In fact, left her can actually be translated forsook her. It forsook her as if whatever it was ailing her is confronted with the healing authority of Jesus Christ, and he says, no, I'm out of here. I'm no match for this. And leaves that thing that had its grip on her, forsakes her. Here's the lesson for us today. Jesus has the authority over the things that claim authority over us. Whether it's a fever or something else. Let me say that again. Jesus has the authority over that thing that is claiming authority over your life right now. The things that plague us, the things that dominate us, 
The things that hold us so tightly where some mornings we can't even imagine getting out of bed. Those things too. The addictions, the afflictions, the relationships that are so healthy and yet we just can't seem to break free from. All of it. The things that attempt to claim us, Jesus says, I have authority over. And so picture this scene with me as, as Jesus lays a hold of her, that which gripped her is released. But then immediately, she begins to serve Jesus. She is set free to serve. Now, some of you are probably thinking at this moment, okay, there's another example of how Christianity deals with women. She's set free. Now she's serving. Now, we have a tainted history as Christians, but this is not an example of it. Because Jesus, later on, he's going to say, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to lay down my life as a ransom for many. I came as a servant. This is a very dignified call. But here's the scene. She's set free to serve. And what we read here is really an echo of the book of Exodus. Consider with me this verse from Exodus chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh... And say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Release your grip from my people so that they may be my servants. And so what's happening right here is that Peter's mother-in-law becomes a living illustration of a new exodus. Jesus is the greater Moses that comes into our lives and our scenario where we are oppressed. He sets his people free so that we can be his servants once again. This is a shocking picture of a king that draws near so close that he actually touches us in our sickness. Think about this. No dignified king would visit someone in their sickness, let alone touch them. And the fear would be that if you touch someone, right? Like I've had a sick daughter this week. I love her, but there's been a lot of like, stay over there, wash your hands, don't touch me. Because I'm afraid that her sickness is going to be transmitted this direction. And no dignified king would do this. No dignified king would come visit the sick and touch them out of fear that the sickness, the disease would be transmitted to them unless that was the very intention. Unless actually that was the intention all along. See, what we see in this account of the woman being healed is a window into the gospel. It's a window into your story and my story as well. The apostle Peter would write this. Speaking of Christ, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. Through his affliction, you've been set free. Jesus bore the wounds of our sin. He bore the wounds of our sickness so that we could come under his healing reign. Jesus took our sin sickness so that we could receive his life. Amen? And the picture of our life, the picture of the gospel really is that Jesus comes to us. He takes us by the hand. He frees us from the oppression of sin. He frees us from the oppression of the devil and everything that grips us. He raises us to new life and transforms us into servants of his kingdom. What we're reading of here in this 24-hour period is a window into our lives as well. A window into what Jesus desires to do in your life as well.
Let me close with this, this quote by Abraham Kuyper. I, I read this a couple weeks ago, and I'll probably read it a few times more. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is so sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Every square inch of our existence belongs to Jesus. It is his. There, there are no portions of our lives that are ours. There's no portion of our lives that we can claim as our own. And for some of you, as you're hearing this, you're hearing about the authority of Jesus, it feels alarming. It feels like a threat to your personal freedom. It feels maybe even frightening. But what we need to understand this morning is that this is actually very good news if we recognize that God's reign is a healing reign. Every square inch of God's realm is a realm that God intends to restore. Where God reigns, God renews. Where God reigns, God restores. So when he says, mine, 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 he is saying renewed, 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 restored. Every inch of our brokenness, every inch of our pain, every inch of our fear, every inch of our doubt, every inch of our division, every inch of our loneliness, every inch of our alienation, Every single bit, God intends to restore all of it through Jesus Christ. Today in part, but in full in eternity. And so as we look at this 24-hour period in Mark, it leaves us with a lifetime worth of questions. But I want to leave us with three to consider today. First, what areas of Jesus' teaching are we not allowing to govern our life? In what ways are we publishing that version, our own version of the Jefferson Bible? I like this. I don't like this. In what ways are we looking to Jesus for partial authority as a partial king in a partial kingdom? Secondly, in what ways are we resisting his deliverance? Remember, the words of Jesus are words of liberation. The words of Jesus, even the most hard ones, are words of freedom. In what ways, in what areas in our life are we resisting Jesus? In what ways are we viewing Jesus as coming into our lives to destroy us? And lastly, what area of our lives need to be touched by the healing hands of the king? Jesus intends to heal. And I'm confident that Jesus heals today. And what are those areas that we need to bring into the realm of his healing grace? Bring before him in prayer and supplication and ask, God, would you reach out? Would you touch this area of my life? And would you bring healing? believing in full confidence that Jesus is able, Jesus is willing, and Jesus is with us. Amen? Let me pray. Father, thank you for...